Okay, Pasa Mufasa, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Ashley Southerd of Mushroom Design. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited. So I got to meet you briefly in Florida, and I saw a couple of panels that you were on at the lovely Microdose conference that was out there. And one of them right off the bat was about marketing. So seeing as how I have a psychedelic media platform and I'm always looking for marketing tips, you know, what are you seeing in this space right now with the rollout of a million things going on? You know, where are you focusing your energies as far as, you know, being able to market and tell stories about mushrooms and their role in society? I think that education is the most important thing right now. And it's not just for psychedelics. It's for, for anything, right? Especially with the pandemic that came, everybody is Googling. Like they do not trust their doctors. They do not trust the first thing they read. They want to read like a million other things. So when it comes to standing out and, and being a, you know, good marketer, it's providing the, the resources for people to understand how these things affect them or apply to them. Sure. And so, of course, you've got Mushroom Design, I believe, is kind of your flagship enterprise. You've got a bunch of other projects you're involved with. But one of the first questions we always dive into is about the origin story of how you got started being a public facing advocate for mushrooms and for psychedelics, right? And there's more and more platforms and more and more entrepreneurs jumping into the space every day. But at some point over the last year, two years plus, you decided that you were going to jump into this space when it was probably not as robust and populated as it is now. So what's the origin story behind mushroom design and how you got started in the mushroom space? So mushroom design was... It originated basically out of the marketing agency that I have. So I have a co-founder in that. Her name is Talia. She is now one of the co-founders of Beyond, the Ibogaine Clinic in Mexico. But we started a marketing agency specifically for the health and wellness niche, as well as nonprofits and B Corp. So when you see functional medicine doctors or you know very environmentally friendly businesses, they don't have, they don't often have the business knowledge to actually reach people or marketing and so on. So we would come in and strategize our marketing, do their branding, et cetera. And that very quickly, that was about three years ago, that very quickly became more psychedelic because psychedelics were becoming, you know, the thing. And I realized um, actually from a personal story, taking a mushroom product that advertises organic, everything good, like there's nothing wrong with the product itself except for the dosaging. Um, so I actually had a terrible blood scare my doctor thought I had blood cancer. It was like a whole thing. And it just turned out I was taking too many mushrooms. Um, and they were increasing inflammatory markers, non-psychedelic mushrooms, just functional ones. And so that's when I was like, wow, we are not doing enough to educate the consumer about what these things are, which is, you know, very common in the American system. It's just buy more, buy more, more, take more. You don't need that. So I set out to create a product that solves for that basically by being safe to take daily, but we are super science-backed and we do like in vivo studies on our actual products. Um, so yeah, we also have, you know, the psychedelic research arm, but we're not interested in doing anything like that until it's federally legal because state by state is tricky waters right now. 
Yeah, I had that conversation earlier today with Dustin Robinson, who's also based in Florida, about this idea that so many people are jumping into Oregon and Colorado, but these things are not legal federally yet. So it becomes quite tricky with the red tape, depending on you know what you're looking to do. Obviously, there's going to be a bunch of people jumping into the space and already have been. But uh, from an investment standpoint and like where you're going to allocate your time and resources, does it make sense to double down on something that's legal on a state by state basis and not federally legal? That's questionable depending on you know what people are going for. So I'd love to jump right into talking about some of these maybe blind spots in this space. And I think that ties into marketing too, because you see so many people with products or a number of products at least that are fairly unscrupulous where they're promoting something that they might not even know what's in them. And you know, I've, I've been following that about the whole myceliated grain versus fruiting bodies, et cetera. And, and just the tendency of people to want to oversell their products and say, if you take this, it will cure you of your depression. It will help you with this, right? I think that's like a very American or very like capitalist mindset, which I understand there's room for that in this space. But uh, what are you seeing as far as like these blind spots and like maybe this unabashed exuberance of people to talk about like the limitless potential of mushrooms to solve all your problems? I think both of us are firm believers in this, but uh, yeah, what, what are some of your thoughts on this? So it's the same with functional as it is with psychedelic. It's like you, you, you got to keep the expectations very measured. I mean, nothing is, nothing is magic. Yes, you can be taking lion's mane instead of coffee to reduce your jitters, but you also shouldn't be taking like six servings of lion's mane a day because that's not good for you either. That increases your inflammatory response and then causes problems in the long run and reduces cellular longevity. And you have a lot of people who are like, oh my God, mushrooms are a big thing. Let's, let's you know, jump on this train. And they're just, you know, contacting a white label manufacturer and creating something without any real knowledge. And it's, it's like that excitement of, oh my God, I discovered something hel like that helped me and I want to help the world with it. But it's like, let's reel it in. Like, just like when you do a big mushroom trip, not everybody needs a big mushroom trip, right? So it's, it's like being measured and really recognizing, um, like, what am I doing with this? What are the long-term effects of this? Um, how can this actually help people? Uh, and then you also have the very corporate people who are like, well, let's just make a lot of money from this because it's trending. But you'll see that in any industry, I think. Yeah, I think that more is not always better. Ethos is something I had to learn. It took me a long time. I jumped in hot and heavy early, right? Bright-eyed, 18-year-old, taking a macrodose, super stoked. This was years ago. And then went to college and was like, I better just take these all the time. And I learned over time, like, that's probably not the move, you know? And now I'm in my mid-30s and I'm married and I find myself like, I don't really want to take that many big doses very often, you know? Like, I'm very happy with where I am and uh, finding a way to fit it into my lifestyle. So now I try to be that sort of voice of caution or reason when I see people who are, like, really excited and there's this, like, it's like, man, how many trips have you had in the last month, you know? Like, I don't think more is always better, right? You can always tell someone who's had too many trips. You really can. <laughs> yeah. And I also think that there's room, like the smaller doses can be so impactful too, because right, we live in a very more is better culture. So there's this idea, it's almost become like a one-upmanship kind of thing where it's just like, oh, I took 10. Have you taken 10 grams yet? Oh, have you done this? And like, okay, I get it. But I find like sometimes like a half eighth is awesome and is so impactful. And like, I've had definitely had experiences where a half eighth of psilocybin mushrooms gave me everything I needed and more. And then, you know, something that was 
5X that or whatever, I found myself just being like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Like this, what, what am I doing here? Right. So, I, but I think the education is so important. So like, how are you positioning yourself to share this knowledge that you have? You've been in the space for a while. Obviously you have some experience with psychedelics. What is the best way to put your best foot forward now that there are so many people who are curious and come into the space, but there's not necessarily that many like consolidated, legitimate academic resources or like well curated resources. There are some, but there's obviously not a lot of them at this moment. Yeah. So I, to your point about like more whatever, I see a lot of the psychedelic, you know, psychonauts, et cetera, being very similar to like the very competitive CrossFit. It's like, oh, well, I did this many. I don't know the terms, but it's like it's becoming that kind of weird, like, uh, what is going on? But anyway, to back to your question, best foot forward is I think I'm just incredibly vocal about like the issues I see being repeated from the pharmaceutical past and also from our current Western medicine model. And the more we talk about it, the more like it pushes the needle of how we need to continue to have these conversations and more companies are starting to pay attention. Like ketamine being advertised on social media, not a good idea. Um, you know, over the overdosing of even nutritional content uh, of mushrooms, but things like that. It's just, I mean, I'm very vocal on LinkedIn too. I get so many comments. I disagree. I'm like, great. Let's, let's talk about it. Like, come on, love it. Let's talk about it. Cause it's, you know, we can't be sheep because we're just going to end up in the same exact spot we've been in this whole time. Yeah. So what is your personal functional mushroom regimen like as someone who has access to these things? I've heard different perspectives about like what time you should take what mushrooms. There's a great book that Taro from Four Sigmatic wrote that has actually like a dosing timetable. I'm not exactly sure where he called all that information from, but like, I think, you know, some people would say cordyceps are good in the morning because of the energy boost. And then you'd want reishi to be more of like an evening thing because of the relaxation, right? So I like make my reishi tea. I love lion's mane. You know, I got a bunch of that. I won't even show them here, but I've got a bunch of these lion's mane capsules and, and products. I'm a big fan of that and a believer in lion's mane. How about yourself? What does your kind of flow look like for your functional mushroom regimen? My flow is literally taking my vitamin every day, like my mushroom design, because I am so, first of all, I'm traveling all the time. I'm like all over the place. I could work till 3 a.m. one night and then go to sleep at 8 p.m. the other night. Like, <laughs> I would love to say I'm more regimented, but I'm not. And I think that, you know, that's another thing that is not talked about so much in both the nutrition and functional space, but also the psychedelic space, that it does take a certain amount of privilege and freedom and schedule to be able to do a lot of these things, right? To be able to go on a retreat or to figure out what schedule is best for your mushrooms. Um, not saying there's anything wrong with it, but when we want to bring these benefits to more people, it's all about, okay, how can we make this the easiest thing possible? How can we meet people where they are for the people that are outside of this like very small percentage of biohacking, health, psychedelic, et cetera? How can we meet the people that shop at Target, not the people that shop at, you know, Erwan or, or whatever? So yeah, to answer your question, mine is just taking my, my mushroom vitamins. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I've shopped at Erewhon before. That place bankrupted me really quickly. So I'm, I'm, I've gone back to Target. You know, I'm a fan of that. Uh, I'm kind of like a fan of regular people. I think that's one thing that psychedelics over time have taught me is like how much value and how much love I have just for like regular people, like not trying to be some like super, you know, woke hippie dude up in uh, Venice Beach or whatever. And those people, I have many people who are friends who fit that description, but like, I really just like regular people and I want regular people to access the benefits 
of you know psychedelics and mushrooms and et cetera, et cetera. So one thing I've seen a lot of that's really popular now is microdosing, right? And I talk to different people. There's so many different ways to do it or whatever, but I'm curious your general thoughts on microdosing because that definitely seems to be like the star of the movement right now as far as like making psychedelics accessible to the mainstream. Because as you said, like not everyone can go to a retreat in, in Peru or Costa Rica. Not everyone wants to do a macrodose. I have plenty of friends who have zero interest in, you know, having an ego death, leave your body experience. But something about microdosing is very appealing to a lot of people to be like, like, just to put it in perspective, I had a conversation with someone who's a mom recently and she was like, moms can't really get high. You know, like we have little kids, like I can't just like take a couple days off to go trip and have this big trip. Like I have to be available for my kids. So like putting in that perspective, microdosing makes a lot of sense if you can access those benefits. What are some of your perspectives about this kind of like boon in the culture that is microdosing? I love it within reason. Um, I think that like when I, when I speak to people who are curious about a microdosing regimen, it's, I caution and I kind of try to make sure that they are operating from some sort of baseline before doing that. Like even if that's just a three minute breathing exercise in the morning or three minutes at night, just understanding this is how I feel now. Okay. But then this is how I feel on the days I microdose. Because if you are going into it with like, no awareness of where you are, then you're also not going to know where you're, where you've gone, right? It's like you're, the point A never existed. So you don't know what point B is. So it's microdosing is super easy, right? And I know that a lot of people love it also because it's like, I always say, you know, you can still drive a car. Like, you know, something is okay if you can still drive a car. <laughs> like, cause I don't know if I smoke weed, I can't drive a car. I know that I would never drink and drive a car. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I, I love how accessible microdosing is. I love how people who, um, who are like corporate, super like, you know, corporate people, they'll look, they're open to it because it's like, oh, okay, like nothing, this isn't, I'm not going to lose my brain. So yes, I love the accessibility, but I still caution against just doing it willy nilly as opposed to having some sort of practice. And it, it doesn't even need to be meditation, right? It can just be like, someone agreeing to take yoga three times a week. So they're, they're automatically in the space of this container of a check-in. Of like, oh, last week when I did yoga, I felt like crap on the mat, but now I actually feel great, you know? Yeah, I love yoga. I miss it. I'm going to put a calendar reminder to get back to it tomorrow. Yeah, my wife does this thing called yoga with Adrian. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Awesome. Love, yes. love yes. yoga with Adrian. But I always tell her like, pick the chill ones. I can't be doing all these like Bikram crazy yoga positions. Like I need to just like, you know, Shavasana, if I do that for 30 minutes, I'm in, you know, just gentle stretching and all that. So there's so many of these like festivals and conferences and functions that are popping up all the time now. I know you've been to a few of them. And I just talked to our friend Paul Austin, who you probably know, and like they're going to throw a conference for the first time. Psychedelics Today is going to launch their own conference. When is the Mushroom Design Conference coming? Oh, my God. Absolutely never. I am so not into event planning. When... When before COVID started, my agency Healer Collective was doing all kinds of like breathwork in the redwoods events, and that was just like one event at a time. These conferences are like hundreds at a time, technically, because you have like all the speakers. And like, oh, no, no interest in that. Thank you very much. I will attend all of them, but I will not throw one. <laughs> Yeah, there's something about doing like large scale event planning that just has no appeal to me. And like you can kind of see it when you go to these events, like, wow, they overlooked some things. And, you know, I know it's a young space, right? Like these 
these events didn't necessarily exist three years ago and now they're everywhere. So I think people are, are learning. But you, one of the things I like to talk about and dive into is this sense of psychedelics also having a potentially dark side, right? Or also having like a lot of blind spots. I think that this unabashed exuberance that comes with an emerging industry and the excitement of the space and all the people talking about it, there's just all these headlines, all these kind of decontextualized media segments coming out about the blanket value of psychedelics. And an example of that, I just saw a headline from a fairly major publication that said, psychedelics are freakishly safe. And my first thought was, damn, I better tell that to my friend who got naked and punched a cop in the face first time he ate mushrooms, you know, like that, you know, and I, I don't like scaremonger in that way, but I do think it's worth having a conversation about that there are, you know, potential risks involved. And this is something I've talked with uh, Rana Hashimi. She's the drug lady uh, doing her PhD at Stanford and studying a lot of harm reduction, things like that. And this general sense of like, not everyone should be taking psychedelics and certainly not all of the time, right? But the way that our current industry is rolling out is there's a lot of people saying like, you should just, everyone should be taking them all the time. And as an addendum to that, I've spent time in Oaxaca and uh, the Sierra Mazatec, and I learned directly from some of the practitioners of, of the mushroom veladas that not everyone takes mushrooms. You know, even in the indigenous cultures, maybe only 20% of the population is taking this. So this like narrative that like, the indigenous people used to all take mushrooms. To me, it's like very misguided in a sense. So I just love to hear your perspective. Like what, what are, you know, some of the blind spots? What are some of the potential concerns and risks to psychedelics that people should be aware and equip themselves with knowledge and information about before jumping into the space and getting super pumped on psychedelics? So it goes back to, and there's, you know, there's ketamine, which is the only legal one. And it's not technically a psychedelic. It's a dissociative. Um, and that being recognizes a safe substance but it's recognized as a safe substance for anesthesia which is used like maybe once every five to ten years in a person there isn't the long-term data on that so i mean uh medicare actually recently turned down i think yesterday coverage for depression using ketamine um and i while it's a little sad it's also incredibly responsible for them to have done that because they don't have the long-term data of this coverage if you're giving something to if they're paying for this and then it ends up being a problem like that that's a whole other fiasco but the other aspect of this when it comes to like mushrooms right a lot of people will read headlines like oh they're so safe they're so life-changing i'm a new person and it's like well it also doesn't work sometimes right like when i did my massive dose of psilocybin i thought i was going to come out like great right nothing and yes it was in, in it provided a lot of insights, but I was still struggling with depression. It wasn't until I did Ibogaine that I felt better. Um, but it's managing expectations because if someone is feels very defeated or very low and they go into an experience thinking, oh my God, I'm going to feel so much better. And then they come out and they're like, I don't feel better. I'm broken. Even this didn't fix me. Like That's really problematic. Another aspect of it is psychedelics raise your awareness. If you're in a situation where it's almost intolerable and you're more aware of how intolerable it is, but you can't get out of this situation because maybe you're feeding four kids and you know, you're a single mother or something like that, like now you feel even worse. So it's a, when we look at the benefits of psychedelics, they're really only beneficial if they're used within a container that can support them, right? So that mother with like four kids to feed if she doesn't even have the space to meditate for 10 days, 10 minutes a day, 
how can we expect a psychedelic to help her rather than hurt her? So, yeah, there's... <laughs> yeah, there's this idea that psychedelics are non-specific amplifiers, right? And I kind of have gravitated towards that in the sense that I used to have this naive perspective that like you take psychedelics and you're a more empathetic, more environmentally conscious person. But then we've seen these other kind of narratives emerging that like that's not necessarily the case for everybody. Like somebody might take it and might amplify other core beliefs they have. And what I have noticed more and more is like, you know, I, I try to distance myself from this idea of being like an authority on this subject. I'm like, dude, I like to make satire. I like to make people laugh. You know, I have my experiences I can share, but the idea that like I fundamentally know something about how these substances work and will, will like affect you to me, like that's not the, the position that I want to play. Right. And I think there are people who are great coaches and like great mentors and things like that, but it's just something I've noticed more and more over time. It's like, it's, there's not just like one blanket fix that's going to happen. You're going to have an experience and then all of a sudden you're going to, you know, start to spend more time in nature. It's like, that's, I don't know if that's how it works. You know, there has to be sort of like something inside of you or something that you've been working on that you already, it's coming to the surface and it's amplifying. So I just always like to slip that in. Plus it makes me sound smart, non-specific amplifiers, you know? So, all right. So one of the things I always like to dive into, right, is about like music too, because it's such a huge part for so many people of the psychedelic experience. You look at a lot of indigenous cultures, there's usually like a sound element to a ceremony, right? Like a rattle or ikaros or, you know, singing things like that. How about for yourself? Who are some of your favorite musicians, your favorite artists? And, you know, do you like to listen to music or have a particular playlist if you're going on an intentional psychedelic journey? Is that something that's part of it? I do. And I can't name the artists off the top of my head, but I do on like on my Spotify, I have a playlist for Aboga. I have a playlist for mushrooms. I have a playlist for LSD and they're very different. Um, the Ibogaine playlist does have a lot of true Gabonese music. Um, and so for me, the music is really, really important because I trip alone. I'll never do it in a group. I remember one group setting I did. It was in like a, a women's circle and it was really great. But halfway through, I was like, I can't have this energy around me. And I was like really high on mushrooms and somehow find a ho found a hotel on like hotels.com and like Uber there and then tripped in my own bed. It was like, <laughs> and then I got yelled at the next morning. They were like, we need you back for the integration circle. And I was like, I don't want to integrate with all of you. Like this is, <laughs> but that's, that's another thing that I, I find in the psychedelic space is very dogmatic, right? It's like, I know my process is much better alone. And just because I like, started with a group. I don't have to close the circle with you guys. Like, chill the F out, right? Um, so yeah, music I think is really important, especially if you're doing a solo trip. Playlist names off the top of my head, I don't know. But if you wanted to check my Spotify, you could. <laughs> I'm going to hack in. I'm going to check it. I just always like to talk about music. You know, since we've been mentioning retreats, we haven't really talked about a retreat experience. But I feel the same way. I'm a solo tripper all day. You know, if, if I take a low dose, maybe like at a concert or whatever, I go to see the Flaming Lips, like I'm going to maybe take a low dose. But like for an actual psychedelic experience, it's always by myself. I prefer that. And I have been to a handful of retreats. You know, I've been invited to this, that, or the other. And I've gone and I see these like really interesting dynamics, like group dynamics that are just not present, you know, when like you have your process. And obviously for some people, like that's the way to do it. It's the best way for a lot, you know, so I, I respect that, you know, but I just curious, like, have you had experiences in these group retreat settings where you see sort of like this dogmatic group think model emerge? And does that impact the experience as far as you can tell? 
totally. I, I see it for me. And like some people, like I'm an introvert. I'm highly empathic. I'll pick up on anything and I don't want to do that. Or I will, I'm also very type A and guarded knowing that I like won't let myself fully release if I feel others are around, no matter how high of a dose the psychedelic is, like something like my ego doesn't die enough to be like, no, just let it all go in front of all these people you don't know. Like it just doesn't happen. <laughs> um, but I know other people don't have that. So it's, and that's the, the other aspect of, you know, a psychedelic experience, especially your first few times is understanding who you are as a person and what's going to help you the most. Because if you're someone like me who goes into a group setting without knowing that you're not great in group settings, then you'll feel really, really frustrated as opposed to me where I was like, yeah, okay, I'm not surprised by this, not working for me, let me get the hell out. You know, but if you don't know that about yourself, then you're just gonna have a bad experience and then you're you're not gonna be able to grow from it. So highly, yeah, I, I've seen highly dogmatic retreats, highly dogmatic groups. I, I think that's something we need to talk about more in the retreat space as you know some people don't want to be in a group and people also themselves need to feel comfortable recognizing like I don't want to be in a group I want to be with an individual practitioner and knowing that that's okay because yes traditionally this was done in group ceremony but traditionally those group ceremonies were like groups that lived together for years they were literally like family so it's comfortable and then on top of that, traditionally, psychedelics were used more to like connect to the land and the earth and find your purpose. They weren't really used for like ailments and disease of the mind. So we have to look at that as well. Yeah, that's something that came up when I talked with Darren LeBaron, who's been on the podcast a few times about how Ibogaine specifically is being marketed and used as sort of like an addiction disruptor. But in Gabon, it was never used for like depression or addiction. Like it had a, you know, very different purpose. So not to say that like there's a hierarchy of set and settings or like what way is better to do it, but it's just good to keep these things in mind. And also, you know, I had a chance to go down to Peru years ago. I was, you know, very fortunate and was really interested in this stuff during college. And I flew down in like 2010 to Iquitos and got to go on a ayahuasca retreat. And I had an amazing, impactful, meaningful experience the first time. Went back, applied a lot of the insights, life was good. So then, right, a year later, I'm like, hey, I can book a ticket for like 500 bucks down there from LA, like, I'm gonna go back. The second time I went back, like, I spent 10 days there and almost nothing happened. And I noticed like this really weird, like, retreat dynamics. I started to pick up on like, people I just met who now want to like go into business together. And like, they're literally these two people from the retreat, like met and then got married. And then it turned into like a super bitter divorce. I'm like, shocker, you know, but I just think that <laughs> it's really interesting to like follow those like retreat spaces because I see tremendous value to them, but also, especially in an unsanctioned space where there's like not really a governing body, if you will. Uh, there's a lot of room and a lot of margin for like mistakes to be made, unscrupulous practitioners. I know this is something that's coming up more and more people are talking about it, but just, just a, a thought I wanted to kind of flesh out there about like, I think retreats can be really valuable, but we also have to be very careful, especially in these vulnerable states, like who we're signing ourselves over to and who we're, you know, keeping around us and, and allowing into that container. Yeah, it's it's very ripe for some form of comedy, I would think, like an actual series. I mean, there's Nine Perfect Strangers on Hulu, but that's not really comedy. But this, this whole space, it could have its own show. 
<laughs> oh, I can't wait. Yeah, working on it. So anyways, uh, like I think we hit the sweet spot here. I like to you know keep them short and sweet and just get straight to the point. And before we let you go today, I would love to hear about any upcoming events or you know uh, any, anything coming out of the Mushroom Design Camp or out of you know what you're working on moving forward over the next six months or so? Sure. So I'm working more in the Ibogaine space right now. It's like my heart, where my heart is, uh, raising awareness for Ibogaine as a solution, not just to opiate addiction, but also depression, anxiety, et cetera. So really just trying to figure out how we can speak more about that, as well as being very vocal about how we can move this psychedelic space forward without repeating the mistakes of the pharmaceutical space. Um, I always tell everyone to read Anatomy of an Epidemic, really, really hoping to work on getting that into an actual series similar to Dope Sick. So that's where that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> That's what's up. <laughs> Ashley Southern, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank and you. you're, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.